Hello and welcome to Pod Academy. In this podcast, Casper Melville, editor of The New Humanist and hip-hop experts, talks to Sajatha Fernandez, Associate Professor of Sociology at Queen's College and the Graduate Centre at the City University of New York. They met to discuss hip-hop as the global voice of revolution. From San Francisco to Senegal and from Hamburg to Havana, hip-hop has gone global. In recent years in particular, the voice of rappers has been prominent in political struggles in Senegal and across the Arab world during the Arab Spring uprisings. How did it happen? And can we really talk about a global hip-hop generation? I spoke to Sujatha Fernandez, author of the new book from Verso, Close to the Edge, In Search of the Global Hip-Hop Generation. I started by asking her how she first got involved in hip-hop. I grew up in Australia, I was born to Indian parents and I was growing up in a working class beachside neighbourhood called Maroubra and as far as you can get from South Bronx where hip hop originated and one of my early memories of hip hop is watching an Australian music show called Rage and seeing the song The Message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and the song really struck something in me. I think that you know, as I went on to college, as I became politicized and started listening to Public Enemy and KRS One and learning about politics and the world through the lyrics and through the music, as all of that happened, I think it, it really sparked something in me to want to travel the world and to want to learn more about hip hop around the globe and try to understand why it was that hip hop could speak to people in such completely diverse places and settings and and why it resonated like now of course the 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 book actually the book title is a quote from the message for those people who haven't heard it what was happening in that particular record why was that that wasn't the first hip-hop record there was two things that were interesting about it one was it just presented the sort of ghetto realities of reagan's america in this gritty hardcore realistic way that was breathtaking Broken glass everywhere, people pissing on the stage, you know they just don't care. I can't take the smell, can't take the noise, got no money to move out, I guess I got no choice. Rats in the front room, roaches in the back, junkies in the alley with the baseball bat. I tried to get away, but I couldn't get far, cause a man with the touch of repossessed my car. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Standing on the front stoop, hanging out the window, watching all the cars go by, roaring as the breezes blow. A crazy lady living in a bag, eating out of garbage pails. Used to be a fag hag, such a dance to tango. Skipped the life and dango. A zircon princess seemed to lost her senses. Down at the peep show, watching all the creeps, so she could tell her stories to the girls back home. She went to the city and got so, so, so ditty. She had to get a pimp, she couldn't make it on her own. Don't push me, cause I'm close. The second thing about the song was that it was Another example of hip-hop's commercialization, the way that the record was produced, was actually produced by a studio musician who mostly wrote and recorded the song, even though it was attributed to Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, who appear in the video clip. And it's, it's just an interesting you know, example of the way that hip-hop, from its very early days, was commodified and sent around the globe. The Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight, it was, it's, you know, produced by the same woman, Sylvia Robinson. It was, again, this, this example of, um, of its commodification. Well, we'll talk about the, uh, a bit later. In fact, it's threaded throughout your book and throughout our conversation will be this kind of dialectic at the heart of, of hip-hop, which, in a way, on the one hand, it never would have made it to Sydney for you to hear it if it hadn't, in some senses, been commercialised and commodified. On the other, 
you make some claims on about hip hop's revolutionary potential, potential uh, political uh, content. So can you just? I just want to get this scene in, in oh. Sydney in my mind. So you went to break dancing classes. Who who was attracted to hip hop in Sydney? What was it potentially doing on the ground there? When we were growing up, when we were very young, it was you know it was of course mass culture. We were getting it through Michael Jackson. We were seeing Run DMC. We were getting it through you know Salt and Pepper in the nightclubs. It was it was again through this kind of mass media through the the global networks that these songs were reaching us. And so it was part of pop culture. It was just growing up in that era was what we were listening to and hearing. But as we became teenagers and, and older and a scene started to develop in Sydney that young people began themselves to perform to start crews, whether b-boy crews or, or rapping or graffiti, DJing, when they actually started participating in the elements, then we began seeing very distinct kind of areas and groups where it was emerging. And so the west of Sydney is an area that, was, that has traditionally been working class and, uh, and more and more immigrant in those days. And as well, there were more Aboriginal young people who were being relocated from the inner city into the west. And so at the same time that you were seeing these relocations and this growing immigrant population that of a new generation that were really not finding jobs in the same way that their parents had when they first immigrated. And they were really finding hip-hop an interesting tool as a way of talking about their experiences and finding spaces of leisure and pleasure. So this is really where the heart of hip-hop was back in the, in the late 80s and the 90s. Let's just recap for, um, you know, for the non-specialist audience. Traditionally, hip-hop is given a kind of uh, four-part existence. It's not just people talking, you know, that, which is rapping. So can we just, the uninitiated, break it down? What, when yeah. we say hip-hop, uh, what are the various techniques and uh, styles and things that are happening? Well, in, traditionally it's been referred to as the four elements of hip-hop being DJing, b-boying, rapping, and these are seen as the traditional components, but, but it's come to be accepted that there are many more components than just these four, that filmmaking and theater and beat making and so many of these other components, fashion can also be seen as all a part of this umbrella term. If you make a film, what is it that makes it a hip-hop film as opposed to just an, any other film? And what, what is its defining it, features? It can be something about the aesthetic is related to imagery or style or music or beat or something that draws on an aspect of hip-hop culture. And, and, it, and, and like I said, it's a really broad label, so people can label hip-hop literature or hip-hop film something that is not even talking necessarily about hip-hop, but that just has a rhythm or a style or a flow that may be associated with hip-hop culture. Your book is kind of part of meditation about the politics of hip-hop and part of a memoir and travelogue of your 11-year journey yes. uh, in search of this hip-hop generation that you mentioned. Before we go any further, I think it's worth having some music. Let's listen to a piece of hip-hop which came out of Favana. The band's called Obsession. Do you just want to set the scene for us and the tune's yeah. called Sabuka that we'll play? Yeah, so this is a tune by the husband-wife rap duo Obsession, Mahia and Alexei, and the song Sevuska is talking about them and their, their relationship, the way that they came together through hip-hop, what, what it means to them, and how they express their love for each other through the music. Una mujer que realmente se lo tome en serio, que sigue en este medio aunque rompa con el novio, que determinado a imponerse marque su territorio, que no le tema el predominio masculino y suba al podio, sí, 
sí, pero sin perder la esencia. Que busca ayuda, claro está en aras de independencia. Urgencia. No te quedes de colista, piensa en grande, mamita. Llega artista, protagonista, lista. Dale. Bueno, a coger pista. Que vista hace fe, la fe hace que tú existas. La verdadera fuerza está en tu propia feminidad. No tienes que moverte a pensar, rapear como un hombre nada. Cuento. Encuentra tu talento, la forma de aportar, de tributarle al movimiento y para adentro, sin muela, estás bajo mi tutela. Magia, ¿quién más? La vieja ¿Quién va a hablar mejor de ti que tú? That's a wonderful piece of music. Now, you went to Havana, and I think you stayed with, with the band Obsession. I mean, one of the great things about your book is the way in which you show that hip-hop becomes inflected in any given place by the politics of that place and adjusts itself. The, the degree to which it stays too faithful or too imitative of American stars is how it fails, but when it picks up the local politics and the local dialectical politics in particular, it can become really interesting. So what did you find in Havana? Well, one thing that, you know, when I when I first went to Havana in 1998, it struck me that so many people like I'd seen, just like I'd seen in Sydney, were starting to rhyme on the street corners, in their backyard with their cousins, you know, in their, in their homes, and that it was really taking off there. And, and when I first went, I didn't speak Spanish, so I didn't exactly understand everything that was being said, but I could see that there was something about, you know, the everyday realities that, that they were talking about. They weren't imitating, you know, they'd sort of moved past the stage of simply imitating American rap and, and trying to sound like American rappers. They were rapping in Spanish. They were rapping about things that meant something to them. And it was only a few trips later that I saw the development of this music from something that was just about the everyday to something that was beginning to take on a political voice. And this political context in Cuba was that Cuba had gone through what was called a special period where the collapse of the Soviet Union led to a lot of economic problems for Cuba. And as Cuba started, as the Cuban government started trying to build the economy in the absence of you know, the, the huge contributions that the Soviet Union had made, they began appealing to a global market. And what this happened was it widened racial disparities within the country. And so that young black Cubans found themselves not only without the traditional tools of education and employment that had been you know, one guarantee of the Cuban revolution for many decades for young people, but they also found themselves locked out of the new tourist economy that was emerging because you know, the face of, of tourist hotels were generally white and most of the jobs available in tourism were for white Cubans and remittances were sent from white families to white Cubans and young black Cubans were finding themselves locked out in both senses and they were finding themselves also the victims of increasing racism as racism became more visible in, in this period. But one of your and great contributions here is that you say that the rappers couldn't just map American racial politics onto the Cuban situation because right. it was very different, including this, this wonderful kind of doublespeak idea that everyone repeated the mantra, which is that there was no racism in Cuba. That was the official line that everyone followed. Exactly. And, and this is the thing that I came to, came to realize as I saw you know, the way that rap was playing such an important role in helping them articulate a racial politics and helping them say, you know, against the official line that in Cuba no hay racismo, in Cuba there's no racism. You hear that everywhere. People will, you know, officials will say to you constantly, we don't have any racism, and, and people will say that to you, especially white Cubans. We don't, this is, a, this is a very mixed race society. It's not like America. And what rappers successfully did was turn that around and say, how can you say there's no racism where there's a racist? And in fact, that's one line from a rap song called Black Tears or Lagrimas Negras. 
by the group Hermanos de Causa, a very popular song that was popular precisely because it spoke to the elephant in the room. It said what nobody was saying, that racism exists and we're going to speak about it, and actually got the Minister of Culture to acknowledge it and to say, yes, we have racism here, and rap music is a form that is finally addressing it. Really, you would credit Cuban hip-hop with having made that possible or necessary that he addressed that? Yeah, I actually, I interviewed the the Minister of Culture and I'd gone through all the documents before, seen things that had been written in Cuban newspapers saying, you know, why is rap here? You know, why are they rapping about race? We don't have a race problem here. And a couple of years after this movement reached its peak was when I interviewed Abel Prieto, the, the Minister of Culture, and I asked him, I said, you know, what do you think about this rap movement? And he said, he said, well, I credit rap with bringing into public discourse this issue of race and bringing into discourse the issues of marginalized barrios, which, you know, have found expression in this form. Well, this is one of the most fascinating things about your Cuban adventure, which, which is not, mm. not only can the American racial politics of American hip-hop not be translated directly into the Cuban situation, mm-hmm. this other thing, which is that the different political structure in Cuba. Now, you, you raise this wonderful point, which is not only is your question, can hip-hop be revolutionary, but your question in Cuba is, can hip-hop be counter-revolutionary, since revolution is the, is the dominant hegemonic structure there? Mm-hmm. And the government get involved in trying to sponsor it, but also in trying trying to annex and control. Just talk a little bit about that, because you're very ambivalent about that process, aren't you? I think this is the parameters that, unfortunately, from the start of the revolution, had had been set. Fidel Castro said... You're either inside the revolution or you're against it. And he said that as, you know, in a speech to artists. And what Cuban art has done right from the very beginning is go beyond that because they've said we can be within and supportive of, you know, a process that has done a lot to change our lives and improve our lives. But at the same time, we can be very critical. And I think what rappers did was they took that even one step further. They, you know, questioned even what is the revolution? How much is it, you know, now in the 1990s and new millennium, how different is it to what it was back in the 60s? And what is it doing for us anymore? I think they kind of changed those terms of being revolutionary, being counter-revolutionary to reappropriate the idea that, no, we are revolutionary. We're not counter-revolutionaries. They say that constantly. But yet they're completely redefining that term and what it means, which of course is a tricky thing to do in Cuba where, you know, on the television you're always, you know, hearing things like, we will be like Shay and promoting revolution and across Latin America and you, you're constantly hearing the term revolution and so when you call yourself a revolutionary, how do you, you know, how do you do that? It's very tricky. But isn't it also the case that the rappers who are prepared to take on the, the government discourse were in danger of, you know, denying themselves exposure at these kind of government-sponsored events or on television or the possibility of breaking through and making a career? Yes, and, and, and that's a really tricky balance that for many years a lot of them played, which was that, you know, how far are we willing to talk about our realities, to really freely express what we believe and what we think, and then, you know, lose our audience because we're going to be shut out from the radio and censored and not allowed to perform at the hip-hop festival. And that was the tightrope that many of them walked, I think, up until, you know, the 2000s when more of them began to travel, when we had the advent of things like YouTube and iTunes. They had many other ways of disseminating their music. So they could circumvent the governmental channels and find an audience. Clearly what's gone on in in Havana was that the rap and hip-hop was mixed with indigenous styles of music. And, of course, Cuba's got the most fantastic musical heritage this uh, you know Afro-Latin funk and jazz type feel I can imagine is threaded through the music. Is that right? Mm, well, th- there's been a kind of 
bit of a debate about that because some people don't want to bring in the salsa and the and the traditional instrumentation, saying that you know this is what the this is what the foreign record labels want us to do to make it sound exotic. World and, music. You know, yeah. We, yeah, we're not going to buy into the whole Buena Vista Social Clubization of <laughs> you know of our music yes. and 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 so some of them really wanted to stick to just doing American beats and they were criticised for saying, well, if you've just got American beats, this is American music, it's not Cuban music. And, and others wanted to innovate and they would bring in live instrumentation into their music, um, like the ritual batat drum, congas or the Brazilian instruments like the palo de agua or various different styles. And, and so you hear a lot of that in either just the live instrumentation or into the beats. So producers would actually use samples from, from Cuban music, boleros. Which is a very sort of hip-hop way of doing it. Rather than exactly. having a band, you cut and mix and exactly. reprogram those yes. beats. Obviously, a lot of that music is, is available on YouTube, as you say, so people should, yes. should go and look it up. Now, I want to take you to Caracas now. At a very difficult time in Venezuelan history, talk about you know going to visit people in this government project which had been built to house people after a devastating flood, but you were only protected from perceived violence of drug dealers and local gang people because you were with people who were respected and recognized and you can feel the tension there and the music sounds different and here we're encountering a kind of music you make the link in your book explicit so i think we should talk about it which is about gangster rap Tell us where and how gangster rap came in America and then why the connection with Caracas. Well, gangster rap is something that emerges on the West Coast in you know, what some people have called the penitentiary culture, the culture of high incarceration of young black people. You know, they're turned to drug dealing and crime in a situation where there's not a lot of, not a lot of other options. And so you had the emergence of this culture on the West Coast as really as a means of, of speaking about this, and it sounded very different to the early East Coast rap that emerged. And, and what happened in, in, in Venezuela was that, you know, I sort of went there expecting after, after my time in Havana, expecting to see a very similar kind of thing, especially since the radical leader Hugo Chavez had just come into power. I expected to see very revolutionary kind of hip-hop and socially conscious. And, and, and instead, I came across a totally different reality. I came across what has, and, and, I, and I think this is something that ever since the debt crisis in the mid-1980s and onwards, Venezuela has, been, has suffered, is large numbers of young people who are you know, living in poverty, turning to crime, incarceration, very much this kind of penitentiary culture like we see in L.A. So this is why the appeal of gangster rap to these young people, a lot of them talked about Tupac and, you know, as one of their icons and one of the, the rappers that they listen to a lot. And, and just in general, I think the music 
spoke to them. Now, they didn't speak English, so they couldn't necessarily understand, oh, look, they're also talking about being thrown in prison and they're also talking about growing up on the streets. And it wasn't the lyrics spoke to them so much as the music. And I think that is something so powerful about hip-hop, that even without the lyrics, the music itself and the tones of the music can communicate an experience. Yeah. One of the words you use very sort of importantly, I think, is the, is the idea of rage as opposed to, I mean, lots of ideas are mixed up in hip-hop and there's a kind of play and there's a kind of alternative creativity going on and there's partying. Famously, African Barbata, you know, decided to stop the gang violence and do the dancing and the hip-hop. But what you've got in Caracas and what you've got in NWA is, is really the articulation of impotent kind of rage, which yeah. um, can sometimes be a glorification or it can sound like a glorification of violence and drug dealing, but comes out of an extreme political situation. Right. And, and I think that's, you know, that's exactly what I was coming across in Caracas is not really having any other way to express that rage other than, you know, the continuing negative cycle of just drugs and violence and crime and, and killings, which Caracas at some points had a homicide rate of up to 100 in Caracas on the weekend, 100 homicides. That's the kind of extreme situation that exists in the barrios. And, and I do think that, you know, that Chavez has and the, the movements, the social movements that have emerged around him have definitely done a lot to change that. But the, the reality that I encountered was one that was still dealing with uh, that reality. So here again, you've got the government getting involved in the hip-hop. Right. Uh, you've got a different kind of government. I mean, Chavez, obviously, a kind of hero of the left. In what way did Chavez's government address the hip-hop generation? I think that Chavez was trying to speak to those very young people, and I think he successfully did speak to young, disaffected black people in, in the barrios by saying, you know, you are not being represented in politics. I am finally someone who is, you know, who came up like you did, who wants to speak to these issues. And, you know, people did say to me that, you know, we're doing the same thing he's doing, but we're just doing it in music. And so I think there were definitely those affinities. But as usual, like I saw in, in Havana and in other places, when the government gets involved and tries to promote groups and tries to start to sponsor the music, it enters a whole different dynamic that I think at the time that I was in Venezuela, it was still a very fledgling political critical movement that was emerging. And it's hard to create a, a movement from the top down. I think the Chinese government has tried to do it. You do know, you think the, the, it robs the music of, of something vital? I just don't think you can create one from the top down, which is what in some ways the Venezuelan government and, and other governments had tried to do. But when, as in Havana or in France or in other places, you have this extremely vibrant movement that already exists and the government realizes, well, we have to reach out to these young people because this is an important part of our population, uh, when the government tries to reach out to those young people, I think that it does introduce a whole different logic that if it becomes dominant, I think can really rob it of something vital, which is its critical potential. And some people argue, Ariel, Ariel Fernandez, the DJ I mentioned earlier, he argues that's what happened in Cuba. That's why people started to disperse and go off into other things. And the movement dispersed was because state sponsorship just became too much. Now, in your book, there are a number of other points on your hip-hop journey, including Chicago and also you, you're back in Australia. But I want to fast forward just a little bit before looking at the journey as a whole, because in a way, this is an unfinished story, but you're yeah. still in that story and you're still monitoring that story. I know you've written recently a piece in the New York Times about hip-hop in other parts of the world. So I think we're going to have a couple of clips and then we're going to talk about hip-hop as it continues to move around the world. We're going to start with one which is very associated with what's been happening in the Arab Spring. And this is Mohammed Al-Dib and the track's called... Masradib. 
في البداية كنت واخد المزيكا لهواية لحد ما اكتشفت الموهبة جوايا كلامي مراية لأحداث عشتها بدأت على قدي من وقتها وأنا بعلى في المستوى فن التطبيق عايز وقت أسلوبي استوى همه الضغط والفقر الشعبي عايز دواء كله في الهوى سوا بس الهوى مش هوانا لو حالين كان عايش مش هيكون في روتانا فتح عينك اوعى تغمضها ولا انت فالح تتفرج على فيلم عرض أول مرة أنا مش ديكتاتور الديب دكتور في قسم البيت تخصص فولكلور شيكي ديكور بتاع المسرحية الكوميدية ذكية زكريا والعصابة المفترية سيا سيا هو سيا أغنية عصرية زي منير مصرية مية مية وقتي بضحي شعبي بصحي ميكروفون صاحبي بيقدر صراحتي مع بكون على راحتي الحياة نكتة أهلا بيك في مسرحتي وقتي بضحي شعبي بصحي ميكروفون صاحبي بيقدر صراحتي مع بكون على راحتي الحياة نكتة أهلا How important has rap and hip hop been in the Arab Spring uprisings? Well, I think it's it's played a very similar role to what we've seen in the African protests, starting with with El General, the Tunisian rapper who produced a biting critique of his government, put out this song where that actually led to him being arrested and led to uprisings in Tunisia, and then through to Egypt and through to Libya, where it, the music just spread. I mean, El General's song spread to Egypt through YouTube and through Al Jazeera and CNN and Facebook, and and became the anthems of the protests there. And in fact. That's that's why I think that Arab is is like this lingua franca of the of the hip hop nation because it has been so powerful in in spreading the music and in and in inciting change and and when before these uprisings began, hip hop was a very powerful and strong movement. It didn't have the broad appeal that it has arguably has now because it became interlinked with the movements as they were rising, and so that people would see these at rallies and protests, they would see rappers up on the stage, they would listen to their music, and they would look to them as a void of guidance. And leadership. We'll follow that up with a track from Senegal, and perhaps you can tell us about that after we've heard that. was the last track we heard there? This last track was one called Cube de Goo by a group called the Kurgi Crew and these rappers were very critical of the government VAD who the hip-hop generation just a decade earlier had actually helped to bring into power because he said that he was going to address constitutional problems that had been introduced by the previous government precisely that you know that government kept trying to stay in power and and VAD said that he was going to you know make alliances with the hip-hop generation and make changes and and in fact he did precisely the 
opposite. Once he came into power, he did try to extend his terms in office indefinitely and, you know, brought in nepotism. And, and, and Senegal is a very poor country where many young people are trying to escape for a better future to Europe. And, and the fact that hip-hop groups particularly had, had helped bring in this leader who then totally turned their backs on them uh, was very disappointing. And so this track is one that was written before the uprising started last year, the protests against Fad and his proposal to extend his term in office. And it's a song that just talks about the rampant corruption and and problems with governance that exist in Senegal. You make some, some quite broad claims or big claims for the political impact of a song like this. Why isn't this just some youths getting together and you know recording a video actually having real political effects? It is, and I think one of the reasons it is is because people are not really saying this in other forms, that until the protests that, that erupted last June, people were scared to say things out loud for fear of retaliation or fear of being thrown into jail. And, and in other musical forms, the rappers criticised Yusendor, for instance, um, and his traditional style of music for not taking a political stance, for being kind of apolitical. And so it's really with rap music that these rappers first, you know, in a really strong way take on these issues. They, they, they style themselves as, you know, modern-day griots, which is the earlier, you know, rhymers and poets who used to criticise the government in power. And they say, we're carrying on that tradition in some ways. We're the only ones speaking out and saying these things. One of the fascinating things about this kind of reorganising and decentering of the hip-hop world is that those of us, for example, who don't speak Arabic are put in the position of those Arab youth or, or Havana youth listening to American rap in that we don't understand what the words mean. I mean, that deep track sounds fantastic and you can still get a sense of what he's saying and, and the power of it. As you said, it's not just in the words, it's the flow, it's the delivery, it's the whole, it's the whole package. And I think it goes back to my point about rage. I think... There is just a certain, at times understated, at times overtly militant, just feeling associated with the music that that really communicates so powerfully. And I and I would make the big claim, unlike you know any other musical form, makes that it, it hits a nerve for a certain generation and and perhaps for several generations who have undergone you know similar series of processes that have led us to where we are today. In your book, there's a beautiful kind of epilogue, and there's a certain sense of disappointment, mm-hmm. and it leads you to certain conclusions. I mean, at one point you say that you had kind of hoped that you were going to find something which was. A, kind of a community it was like this hip in search of this hip-hop generation you were going to find a hip-hop nation and in fact the strength of hip-hop was not that it formed a grand global movement but rather that the myriad forms of expression it made possible in the local yeah i i mean i think i was i think this can correspond to us thinking about hip-hop today in the arab uprisings and the african protests as well i was trying to put too much on hip-hop i was trying to make it be a grand social movement that could unite people across the world and in the end it is just it's a music and artists are concerned with the music that they're doing it's even if they are political and even if they're voicing political ideas you know, in the end they are artists and, and the role of art is not necessarily to be as instrumental as you know just putting forth a political message but nevertheless I you know I still think that hip-hop played a very powerful role in each of these locations where it came and and even if people have moved on and in the epilogue I give a kind of snapshot of where people have gone and what they're doing now and many of them have moved on many of them are disillusioned with where hip-hop is right now but I think that they all acknowledge that it played a very important role in their own formation and that possibly several of them might have been you know in jail or dead or in on a very bad path in life if they hadn't come across this musical form that had given them a way to articulate their experience and in some cases 
helped form political movements that did bring about changes in society. Just to bring this back around to you, there is a kind of part of the hip-hop generation has developed its own academic tradition, and there are many academics, several academics, who describe themselves as hip-hop intellectuals or hip-hop academics, people like Trisha Rose and Imani Perry. Do you consider yourself a hip-hop academic or a hip-hop intellectual? And how have you how have you brought what you've learnt there into what you do now? It's undeniable that hip-hop has completely informed the way that I do, the research that I do. Definitely when I teach, for instance, I teach social theory, I teach uh, Marxist economic theory, and I teach media, and I go through a whole range of traditional social theories, and I use hip-hop to teach those things. When my students walk in the classroom, I ask them about, you know, what shoes you're wearing? Have you got Nike shoes? Let's think about, you know, hip-hop fashion and the political economy of that. When I'm teaching, I find that hip-hop, because it still continues to be such a powerful motive for young people, and the way they think and what they consume, it just helps me to articulate and to discuss with them complex ideas that otherwise they might not necessarily care about or be interested in. I just want to emphasise to anyone listening who feels that they don't want to plough through an academic text about hip-hop that your book is not in no way an academic book. It's very readable, it's very personal. What did you do consciously to make this a book that could be read by anyone, including many of your subjects and informants? It has to be told in a voice that is more engaging than simply you know, writing an academic text. And you said we're schooled in academia to write in this voice that is impersonal, that doesn't use I, that, you know, that, that is not colloquial, that's very formal. And I just think that, you know, writing a book like this could not have been told in that voice. In that way, it's a wonderful kind of embodiment of, I think, what you've said about hip-hop and why, in a way, you know, this is a hip-hop book. So uh, thank you so much. It's a wonderful book, and thank thanks you. for the, the interview. It's been fascinating. Great, and thank you so much. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Don't forget that a transcript of this podcast can be found on the Pod Academy website, podacademy.org. You can follow the debate about this podcast and our other podcasts of academic research on the Pod Academy Twitter and Facebook pages.